Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. Hello and welcome to Business Fights Poverty Spotlight Interviews. I am Katie Heisen, Director of Thought Leadership. Each week, these interviews provide you with the insights from a different perspective of Business Fight Poverty Network, giving you first-hand understanding of how businesses and others are working on some of the world's biggest social challenges. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Dan Neal. During our conversation today, he explains why data and measurement mean so much for business during the COVID-19 crisis and how this data can really accelerate moving forward from the pandemic. Dan's career is dedicated to impact measurement. He leads social transformation within the World Benchmarking Alliance, the WBA. Dan and the WBA's work are anchored in the saying, you can only manage what you measure. Together, they are on a mission to boost companies' motivation and efforts towards achieving the UN Sustainable Development Goals. They are accelerating change in the way that business impact is measured developing transformative benchmarks that will compare companies' performance on the Sustainable Development Goals. Dan Neal, welcome. Hi, great to be here for my first podcast. Great to have you, Dan. I'll try and be nice. Businesses and others are reacting and and arguably in crisis mode at the moment. I mean, we're seeing huge amounts of money and energy flowing towards the fight against COVID-19. How can measurement really help to ensure that all this effort and energy and money is actually going to make a difference? So it's an interesting question because I think there's some clear divides. I think many governments are indeed releasing and spending huge amounts of money in fighting coronavirus, which for them means protecting their people, both from the disease and from the fallout of the economic impacts. That's definitely a crisis mode, but a lot of businesses are in a different kind of crisis mode, survival and hunkering down as their first priority. So there may be some companies who have tweaked business models and alcohol brands producing sanitizers or clothing companies producing face masks. But I think for the vast majority of companies, there's actually a key question around how they're surviving and what approach they're taking. So how they're treating the people impacted by their operations and supply chains, their employees, contractors and workers, right down to the very end of the line. Leading aside government stimulus, which I think is the the vast majority of the, the dollar sign put against this, which I don't think I'm qualified to talk about, but we can really view company responses through a lens initially of the negative impact they've had on people or the impacts that have been avoided. Take as an example the apparel sector, which has seen a huge drop in sales. Some companies have committed to honouring their contracts with suppliers, but others have straight up said that they won't pay for clothes that have been ordered and already in production. Those companies are placing an extraordinary burden on the most vulnerable workers at the end of the supply chain, with 2 million people in Bangladesh, for instance, recently put out of work. Those people being made redundant with no safety net, by manufacturing companies who in turn won't be paid for work they've already done, who are stuck with stock that they have no real value. That decision in corporate headquarters to reduce the outgoing cash flow by not paying for orders may not on its own create a thousand job losses because the manufacturers uh, supply many brands, but it's going to be part of a cause of collective impact. So in terms of measuring the direct impact of payment decisions, this can be tricky, but what can be reviewed is the company's responses in terms of their decisions decisions to honour or cancel contracts, and linking that to collective negative impacts. A more straightforward example might be in terms of companies who've made people redundant versus those who've kept them on and provided support to their employees to work in in new or different ways. With all these stories about companies, I think that the challenge for measurement is any sort of consistent or comparable data across dozens of sectors and hundreds of jurisdictions. That's the kind of data I think you need to provide credible commentary on, on real impact. 
linking to the WBA's longer-term work, we'll be assessing 2,000 most influential companies for the Sustainable Development Goals on whether they meet basic societal expectations through a set of core social indicators. These will include things like living wages, workers' hours, and worker protections, like unemployment protection, all things which should, if met, result in companies that are better prepared for crises like COVID, at least in terms of their impacts on people. As an aside, there does seem to be a correlation between company sustainability performance and how they've fared during the, the pandemic thus far. And I think this actually perhaps reflects money and energy that companies with true purpose have put into responsible business practices before the crisis, rather than how much perhaps PR-focused philanthropy companies can mobilise during the crisis. So in summary, I think we can, we can say we can measure some direct impacts like unemployment, but we may also be better served by focusing on tracking company decisions that are linked to collective impacts as a way to distinguish between company approaches, whether they're good, bad or ugly. Wow. So there's real obvious correlation between those sustainable performances and, and survival, quite frankly, during this crisis, which sort of leads me on to my next question. I mean, what are we learning now during the COVID crisis, which we need to learn going forward? I think there's, there's so much and it, it's pretty broad. Firstly, with a, with a benchmarking hat on, I think we're seeing how important environmental, social and governance or sustainability data can be. So this you know, termed maybe non-financial information is clearly financially material. Some research shows that the high performing firms on sustainability have significantly outperformed the market, which will no doubt elevate the need for, for more data going forward. I think the, the crisis is also making some uncosted externalities a bit harder to ignore. As, a, as an example, biodiversity loss seems to be a key contributing factor for issues like coronavirus or Zika virus. So investors should be very keen on knowing where they might be exposed to those environmental impacts. Likewise, and linked to that, I think we're learning that opaque supply chains don't serve us very well. And there's a significant data gap to be filled in terms of supply chain mapping. Secondly, we're learning or, or relearning more about, I think, the roles of business and society and the role of people within business. And not to get too political, but in the UK, the perception of what a key worker is has shifted markedly in light of coronavirus, with recognition that many of the lowest paid jobs are actually vital cogs in society's machine and they aren't well recognised or rewarded. Similarly, we're seeing what services and businesses really matter and what are most missed by people in lockdown. A bit broader, globally, I think there's been a bit of an awakening as to the fragility of the global economy and the reliance on just-in-time supply chains. Maximising efficiency at the cost of resilience has laid bare the weaknesses of some business models. I think it's really interesting that in the wake of the financial crisis, banks were forced by governments to increase their cash reserves and people were encouraged not to run up huge credit card bills, but save for a rainy day. But not companies, who seem to be pushed by a demand for efficiency into places where cash reserves, stockpiles, and resilience were frowned upon. I think we may be learning that too much efficiency can be a, a bad thing sometimes, counterintuitive as it may seem. Also, in, in some respects, it's not about learning new things, but realising that things we already knew were important can't be left as voluntary measures and really have to be implemented. As an example, the UN guiding principles on business and human rights have been around since 2011. Expecting companies to understand their impacts of the business decisions on people and working to avoid or minimise, mitigate or remediate harms, this is not a new thing. But this pandemic has really reinforced the need for businesses to respect human rights. So I think if, if coronavirus results in improved global, regional and national frameworks that make companies act responsibly, that may be a useful development to help build back better. The European Commission's latest discussions on mandatory human rights and environmental due diligence regulations 
suggests that in some parts of the world, COVID is reinforcing this narrative that markets need a stronger guiding hand in order to make companies act responsibly. I think steering away from getting too political, but again, the need for strong government action in the face of crisis has been highlighted. I think linked to this, we've learned that if the, the pressure is large enough, governments, companies and people will act making significant sacrifices and sweeping changes in order to save lives. And going forward, I, I sincerely hope we can take this commitment with us in order to address the challenges of climate change and also remember the importance of responsible business conduct so that we create a just transition that leaves no one behind. And you mentioned there briefly sort of the idea of building back better. I mean, how will the data help us build back better? So just to confirm, I'm not, I'm not talking about big data and social tracing apps or the privacy concerns, but talking about data on companies and companies' role in a, in a potential recovery. And I think there's no guarantee that it will. That's my glass half empty, misery guts kind of talking. But what I mean is that data is just a, an element in a huge ecosystem and on its own, it's useless. It's just information. It takes analysis to turn that info into useful intelligence and, and, and useful commentary. And for that, you need several things. You need methodologies to make the data useful. You need people to do that work and organizations willing to provide the data. Once you have that useful info, then you also need a way of using it to drive real change. The World Benchmarking Alliance, who I work for, exists to create publicly available benchmarks of corporate contribution to the SDGs and through an alliance of like-minded organizations to drive change both within the companies and the system that they operate in. So we exist in that space that gets us from data to action, and we want to generate a movement around increasing the private sector's impact towards a sustainable future. But coming back to the the post-COVID reset, fundamentally, parts of the framework for building back better are already there. So the, the Sustainable Development Goals and the Paris Goals, and companies having a true purpose in society and who act according to established societal expectations, such as respecting labor rights and paying living wages and eliminating forced labor. That framework is actually already there. And I think the WBA will assess 2,000 most globally influential companies against their contribution to these, these transformations that need to happen, things like circular economy or the energy transformation. By having, as I mentioned before, very strong social component in all our benchmarks, we can make sure that companies are assessed on whether their contribution to the transition is a, is a just one. And so the 2030 agenda and achieving the SDGs was always a huge task. And now with coronavirus, it may have gotten harder. But it's also opened the door to new conversations and potentially new ways of thinking about what society needs from business. So as the WBA is trying to assess how well companies are helping to build back better to enable better decision making, I think for that, we actually need more disclosure of relevant data that can plug into this theory of change that we've got. So what are the suggestions that the data is making now? It's quite a broad one. I think, I mean, outside of, you know, the the horrifying numbers regarding the people directly impacted by the virus, I think for the purpose of this conversation, for me, the scariest data has been coming out from from the ILO. So initial bad outcome scenarios that they looked at from mid-March were sort of 25 million people losing their jobs. By the 8th of April, when the USA was showing just how bad job losses could get in a high-income country, that number was up around the 200 million mark globally. Their most latest report suggests that up to 1.6 billion people were in imminent risk of losing their incomes, with the heaviest burden likely to fall on those in the informal economy. That's the people with the maximum vulnerability and minimum social security to fall back on. So we see vast portions of humanity live with a kind of vulnerability that's probably hard for most people listening to this podcast to fully grasp. 
And I think a crisis like COVID highlights the fragility of this economy that we work with. So those employment figures suggest to me that all too often businesses are governed in such a way that views people purely as an overhead rather than an asset. And that the current shareholder primacy approach to capitalism isn't fit for purpose and needs transforming. So that's that's quite a a broad and, and personal view. I think if I bring it down to some of the data we've actually seen, WBA has an annual ranking of the largest companies in high risk sectors for human rights. And we've consistently shown that companies don't demonstrate their respect for human and labor rights. For instance, half of the companies benchmarked in 2019 didn't meet any of the minimum criteria for due diligence. So strongly suggesting they wouldn't be well placed to understand the risks to people because of their actions or inactions, either before or during during a time of crisis. But this is from last November. And I think it's fair to say as well that the WA hasn't magicked up any quick data sets in a knee-jerk response to coronavirus. I think though it's fair to say that. Going forward, it's going to be very much front of mind for for WBA, as an example, that the corporate human rights benchmark is having a significant shift this year to provide commentary on on company responses. But the legitimacy of something like the corporate human rights benchmark methodology is is hard won over several years of serious global stakeholder consultation implementation. So I think it's a touch unrealistic to think you can move as fast as people might want and create useful info the depth people want to use and maintain that credibility. I think instead what's out there at the moment rather than data is a lot of anecdotes on company behavior, some good and some bad. And a lot of the bad anecdotes revolve around putting profit for people. As an aside, the latest Edelman study of 10,000 people in March showed that 40% of people had already shifted their purchasing behavior based on how companies responded to coronavirus, with two-thirds saying they'd lose trust in companies that put profit before purpose and would actually change their future purchasing behaviors. So I think that kind of data suggests we have potentially an unprecedented opportunity to mobilize people using information on companies, whether their response has been good or bad. I think we as WBA will be working to bring this kind of data to life a lot more in the coming year and hopefully be able to make data-led suggestions so that others can make evidence-based decisions to drive change towards systems that truly value and respect people and planet. So... Tan, I mean, can you, for those of people who are listening to this podcast today, can you share a little bit more on why people might want to find out more or get involved with the World Benchmarking Alliance? Sure. So I think it depends a lot in terms of the individual and whether they're from a company that might be getting benchmarked, whether they're from an organization that carries out research and they're interested in the methodology that we're creating, whether they're from the investment community and the civil society that are interested in the the depth of the data and the methodologies we produce. We're looking at 2,000 companies, which are the most influential for achieving or not achieving the sustainable development goals. But the broad alliance that we bring together at the moment is over 130 organizations, from the International Finance Corporation to Civicus to UNICEF to, to WWF. So if people are in those kind of spaces, I definitely encourage them to have a look at the website and see uh, whether they might fit into to the alliance. Similarly, if companies are part of the 2000, I'd very much encourage them to see where we are in the different work streams, where their company fits into the seven systems transformation model, which is how we're, we're viewing the world and how we're building our benchmarks. At the moment, we've just launched the scoping report for the social transformation, which sits at the heart of the model and underpins all of the other transformations. So that's the bit that I drive. And at the moment, we are um, drafting the indicators, which will be going out in June for global consultation. And these will apply to all of the 2000 companies, regardless of their sector. 
So that actually for me is a real tangible way that people can engage and get involved and take part in the consultation. We're running a webinar on the 12th, um, so the details will be on our website. So I think if people are interested in, in knowing more initially, then that might be a good place to, to come and hear more about the model. We will pop the link to that webinar and to the World Benchmarking Alliance into the notes section that sits alongside this webinar. My final question today, Dan, I mean, what would be your one piece of advice or your call to action to those who are listening? I think it's very hard to say one thing because this is Fights Poverty have such a, a wide audience. But I think it goes to the individual and I might suggest that people try and uh, have slightly longer longer memories than normal and take some of, you know, if you're feeling you know, the frustration and anger and disappointment that seems to be that we're all feeling at the moment. I think if we can take some of that motivation with us as we move forward to try and be an agent of change yourself. So if brands are shown to have behaved poorly or don't act in the interest of people, ask yourself if your values and their values are really aligned and then use your purchasing power to make a different choice. And in particular, speak to your pension provider, which is one of your, your key levers of influence as an individual, and ask them how they're going to support building back better. Ask them how they're going to avoid businesses that haven't done well by humanity in quite a dark time. And finally, please look out for our benchmark launches and try to spread the word. Oh, well, Dan, Neil, thank you very much for your time today, sir. Great. Pleasure to be here. Thanks very much. And if you like what you've heard today, please do rate and subscribe to us. I would also love to hear your feedback. So please do drop me a line at any time. I'm Katie at businessfightspoverty.org. Many thanks. Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty.